0: been working very, very hard, they've been praying, and they've been meeting, trusting God to bless in this particular week. This is one of the most remarkable things that we've seen happen on our campus, and we are very grateful for all who have worked so hard to make uh, this week possible. I was asked by those who are the leaders in Renaissance 81, and also by the Student Christian Association in our meeting together. If I would speak today on the cost of discipleship, Renaissance, of course, means new birth. And only the Holy Spirit can lead us into that experience. But once we are born again, then discipleship begins. And so I'm going to read to you some selected passages of Scripture that deal with it. The first is printed in your bulletin. And then the second, I will read two verses from Luke chapter 14. The first is from Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. If you do not have a copy of the Bible with you, it's printed in your bulletin. And they went to another village, and as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. But he said unto him, Leave the dead to bury their dead. But go thou and publish abroad the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow thee, Lord, but allow me first to bid farewell to them that are at my house. But Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And then in Luke chapter 14, at verse 25 and 26, notice that great multitudes are following him each time that these expressions concerning discipleship are given. And we should remember this any time we see great crowds of people who seem to be wanting to follow Jesus. Notice what Jesus said to these crowds. And great multitudes were going along with him. This is in Luke 14, 25. Great multitudes were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yea, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Amen. May God bless to our understanding the meaning of what it costs to be a disciple of Jesus. One of the most touching revelations came out this week concerning this uh, event which has taken place here. So often young people are put down for things that are not good. When young people do something positive and good, we ought to certainly acknowledge that and encourage it. And when our young people here on the campus began to pray, and this was generated through the students themselves, not motivated from the faculty, The cost of having so many artists from so many places come in and then to rent the auditorium and the other matters that were connected with this meeting was very great. But one of the students who gave me permission to say this but asked that no name or identification of any kind be made went to her own parents speaking about the cost and what they hoped to do. Her people are of modest means. And because so much expense was involved in the meeting, with a total budget, I think, of somewhere around $7,000, and they had to have about $4,000 of seed money to have as front money and advance money to begin, this particular mother and father wishing to encourage their student at this school in something that was being done for Christ went to the Savings and Loan Association and took out of their savings a sacrificial gift of over $4,000 to make this possible. That's something about the cost of discipleship. I spoke with our treasurer this morning, the treasurer of the Montreat Church, and if any of you wish to make a gift toward the cost of this student program here, you may do so through the Montreat Church, making the check payable to the Montreat Church with a letter designating the gift and it will be used to defray the expenses of this meeting. Let's stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for the love of the Lord Jesus, and especially for that love which shines so brightly and beautifully in so many of the young people on this campus. We are grateful for them. And we're grateful for those who have advised and counseled with them in this week of preparation and prayer. We're thankful for the 70 who have met uh, to learn lessons on discipleship and how to teach another person in how to become a Christian. And if nothing else came, if no big crowds came, just what's been done so far would already have been a great blessing, and we praise you for it. We thank you for the theme that we have this day suggested by these young friends. And we pray as we look into the cost of discipleship that we will allow the Holy Spirit to have his own way in our minds and hearts and lives so that we will not play at following Jesus, but so that we may realize that serious business to give our lives and hearts to him so that our lives may be disciplined and conformed into the image of your Son. Bless us, Father, as in this holy time of the year when we look forward to it, Holy Week and Easter, that we think of what it costs to follow Jesus and be willing to give our all to him. Bless the gifts which are given this day. Superintend their use. Bless gifts that will yet be given and guide in their use too to your glory. Now make the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. Jesus told many remarkable stories regarding discipleship. He said that it was costly. He said that it was to follow him and to follow into the kingdom of God was like a man who knew that there was a treasure hidden in the field. And he went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field. He said that it was like a pearl of great price beyond which all other pearls paled into insignificance. And when that pearl was seen, the man sold all that he had and bought that pearl of great price. When Jesus speaks of these things, he teaches us that the grace which he extends to us by which we are saved, is costly grace. When Mary Harner and Estelle Brusso and Tom were playing that lovely song a moment ago, Saw ye my Savior, wounded and bleeding, that's what it costs God. And what cost God greatly cannot be cheap to you. Remember that. What cost? God greatly cannot be cheap to you. It's no easy matter to be singled out by the Holy Spirit and come and follow Jesus, the Spirit, and come and follow Jesus. There is a book which I greatly commend to you, which was a turning point in my own life in discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. This man, when he was 39 years of age in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, just three or four days before the surrender was made, and he would have been liberated, was put to death on direct orders of Himmler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a martyr for Christ. Before World War II had worked into the state that it fell into, He could have stayed in the United States where he was teaching theology. But a letter came came to him from the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. And Karl Barth wrote to him and said, the church needs you now. It would be easy to stay there in America where you're safe. And if you come back here, everything is raging, and it will cost you. But here is where you're needed. And Bonhoeffer went back to Germany where he held forth ...for the kingdom of God and the cost of following Christ and sealed it with his own blood. To follow Jesus is not a glib nor easy business. And Bonhoeffer said the church did a terrible thing when it made following him such an easy thing. This past week in our home we had a young woman from China. It cost her greatly in communist China... When she had to leave her own country and her own profession as a medical doctor and come out of Communist China. When she spoke, her eyes glistened with tears as she told of the suffering church in China. When one of our own numbers stood and used her as a translator to describe experiences which she knew of, she told of a soldier who had a tiny little New Testament who had to put a blanket over himself each night and read his little Bible with the flashlight under the blanket because a Bible was forbidden. When one of his sergeants saw it, he confiscated it. He didn't know what a Bible was. It said, Holy Bible, and the word holy made him think it was some sort of superstitious book. But he wrote out his report and submitted it to one of his superiors. The superior looked at the Bible. He didn't know what to do with it. He wrote out a report and submitted it to his superior. The next man got it and looked at it, and he wrote out a report and sent it on up. Finally, it got to a general who had just come into disfavor with the Communist Party leadership. He had enough brains to begin to read it. And in reading the New Testament, the cost of discipleship and the wonder of salvation reached his own soul. He showed it to the Communist Party member who was over him and they took turns about reading it every other day. The upshot of it all was that both of these men were converted. Both of them had to resign their particular position in the army and in the Communist Party and both of them were sent into labor camps because it's costly when Jesus bids us to come and follow him. Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus asked you to come and follow him, he bids you to come and die. Now that first passage of scripture which I read from Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Jesus was going with his face already set toward Jerusalem in that cross. He knew what it would cost him. And on his way toward that cross, there came a young enthusiast gushing up to him and saying, I will follow you wherever you go. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people came running down the aisles, I will follow Jesus no matter where he tells me to go. But Jesus deals honestly with every person who comes to him. And he knew that this man's enthusiasm and order was not really based upon carefully considering what it meant to follow him. And so Jesus told him bluntly, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're a scribe, you're used to sitting in a study that's lined with books. How are you going to be when you have no place to lay your head when you're like me? And you're sleeping out on the sod at night and you look up at the stars When you go from city to city, and people cast stones at you and persecute you, Jesus pushed him back to think about what it means to follow him. You see, you do not choose to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit creates a desire in your heart. And when he creates that desire, your will must bend to it. But costly grace is what's extended. And it costs you to follow him. And Jesus looked at another and said, follow me. The second one, he calls out. He says, come and follow me. But he said, permit me first to go and bury my father. In the Old Testament, we are taught, honor thy father and thy mother. The Jews had special laws that dealt with the burial of the dead. Is it a monstrous thing that Jesus is saying to this person that he cannot stay and bury his father? There are two explanations. It may be that his father was getting along in years and that he wished to stay until his father died and then after his death he would come and follow Jesus. Or it may simply have been that there cannot be any competing loyalty with a commandment of Jesus that that supersedes everything else and what he says goes and we must rise and follow him. So Jesus said to him, allow the dead, those who have not received any call to discipleship, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, he had called to him specifically, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. When he calls us to a specific task, It is not put forward as a basis for negotiation or discussion. But it's an order and the call is to obey. And the church has made a terrible mistake in making easy grace, easy membership in the church. It's not so here. It costs you. No loyalty to anyone else can supersede that loyalty to him. And another came running to him and said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my home. And then Jesus says these remarkable words, No one, after putting his hand to the plow, after putting his hand to the plow, this is not a thoughtless expression. Putting his hand to the plow meant arduous, hard, long work. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back said, Jesus is fit for the kingdom of God. That's a part of the cost of discipleship. I grew up on a farm out in Texas and plow work is hard work. There is something that's exhilarating about spring when you sow the seed. You can go forth with joys, sowing seed. It's happy. The furrows have already been dug. Everything has been plowed up. But in the day in which Jesus lived, and in olden days here in this country, to follow a plow was hard business. It, mean you, it meant you had to stick to something. You had to hold on to it. And it was long, hard business day's work that you were going to put in. And that plowshare was going to cut through a lot of crusty, hard soil and turn up the subsoil so that real growth could be made. And so it is when we follow him. It means the discipline of reading the Bible, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of turning off some television programs that are not fit for you to watch the discipline of avoiding certain company, the discipline of being a loner when you have to be a loner in order to take your stand for Jesus and be faithful and true to him. What cost God his son cannot be made cheap for you. There is no cheap grace, and to follow him is costly business. And then in the lesson that Tim read this morning about one who did pay the price and follow Jesus, A tiny little man, the most unlikely looking candidate for salvation, whose name was Zacchaeus. The name means pure, but he would have been anything in the world but that in the eyes of most people. You see, he was a renegade tax collector. He wanted money more than he wanted anything else in all the world, and he was going to get it, and get it by any means that he could get it. If he could get it honestly, he would get it honestly, and if he could get it in some other way, then he would do it that way. But Zacchaeus had a wonderful characteristic. He was curious. He was curious about Jesus and who he was. And I have noticed among young people a great curiosity about Jesus. They want to know about him. I have seen other people in other lands who want to know about Jesus. That communist soldier reading his little New Testament under a blanket that general who looked at it, that party officer who saw it, they want to know, is there a word from God? Is Jesus really God's son? If he is, what is my proper response to it? And this man, Zacchaeus, he will give us a fourth candidate for discipleship who follows Jesus. He was curious. He wanted to know all about Jesus. He had made his money And he had made a lot of it. And he was well known because Jericho, where he lived, was a place that was a lucrative place to to be in business. It was famous for its fruit. It was famous for its balsam. It was a famous uh, taxation post to have. And everyone would have known Zacchaeus. Matthew would have known who he was, and he would have known who Matthew was. Zacchaeus would not have been spoken to by the Pharisees, They were the religious leaders, and they were good people and very strict people, but very hard people. Their hearts were all full of divine law, but their hearts were all devoid of divine love. And they would have nothing to do with a traitor to the cause of Judaism, like Zacchaeus, who sold himself out to the Romans to collect taxes. And this would mean that with all of his money, he was a very lonely man. And I think that deep down in his soul, he always wished that he could start over again. He had heard that Jesus reprimanded the Pharisees for what they did in cutting off fellowship with other people, because Jesus would speak to anyone. It's remarkable to see how Jesus weaves in and out among the different characters in the gospel. And Luke is especially good at showing us this. John shows us great conversations with other people. Jesus can talk to a learned theologian like Nicodemus and push his Ph.D. aside and tell him that he has to have a renaissance, he has to be born again, or he cannot see the kingdom of God, he can't enter it, he can't know anything about it. He can talk to a woman who's been married five times, and the man with which she lives now is not her husband, and yet Jesus can talk with her very civilly, but get right to the heart of the problem and say, go call your husband and bring him here. And Jesus can deal with her. Jesus deals with all sorts and kinds of people. And so Jesus had achieved a reputation. And by the way, when he met Zacchaeus, do you know what day that was? It was just before Palm Sunday. Just before the most important week in the whole history of mankind. And yet, and if you are a liturgical person and follow the readings for uh, this time of the year, the reading happens to begin in the 18th chapter of Luke, where he heals a blind man on the road named Bartimaeus, and then it goes right into this account of Zacchaeus. And so after the healing of the blind man, the great curious throngs would have been up and down the road, and Zacchaeus would be curious to see Jesus. He wanted to see him very much. And I expect the crowd took a special delight in pushing Zacchaeus out of the way and standing in front of him because he was short and not allowing him quite the privileges that other people had. But Zacchaeus was accustomed to some of this, and he was shrewd. He was smart, and he was very sharp. And you know, most of the time when I hear preachers preach on Zacchaeus, They say, now, isn't this a wonderful illustration of the love of God? And that's a pack of trash. Jesus didn't do it as an illustration. We do stuff for illustration. We want people to see it, so we got a good illustration. Jesus did this because this is the nature of God. This is the love of God extending to a person, not something for public relations. Not like some candidate for political office who's got a pack of photographers standing around to get a picture. Jesus did this because God loved that little Jew who had turned his back and yet down inside God knew that there was something there that was worth redeeming and he wanted Jesus to get to him with the message of salvation. That's how much Jesus loved. And Jesus put his reputation on the line. When he got to Jericho, I'm sure that there must have been people who thought, well, I know he will stay at Rabbi So-and-so's house. And someone else would say, no, we ought to uh, arrange a special committee to meet him and have all the dignitaries of the city. Maybe the mayor of Jericho will be out there. But Jesus knocked the welcoming committee's plans all awry when he was walking and he looked up in the tree and saw the funny little figure of Zacchaeus up in a tree, looking down at him. Now, Zacchaeus probably had his Instamatic camera, and he thought, when he gets close, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a good bird's eye view of him here. And I've heard that he might get in an argument with the Pharisees, and maybe I'll get a picture of that. And then maybe he'll heal someone, that would be nice. And I'll, I'll at least, I'll get, his, I'll get a picture of him. And when he tried to get up in the tree, some Roman soldier was standing there and he said, Hey, who are you? And Zacchaeus said, Well, who are you? I know you're centurion. He's Lysias, isn't he? He owes me some money. Help me up in his tree. And up in the tree he went. He knew how to get things done. He was shrewd. He had been making his money that way. He was curious. He was curious and Jesus came close. And Jesus did this astonishing thing. Zacchaeus looked at him and Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and their eyes met each other. And Zacchaeus thought, he sees me. And then he could not believe his ears when Jesus called his name. Zacchaeus, said Jesus, come down. I'm going to your house for dinner. Well, Zacchaeus scampered down out of the tree to go with Jesus, and I've always thought of Jesus not as a pale, sickly-looking figure, but remember he was a carpenter who had to handle big, heavy timbers. He was a big man. He must have been powerfully built. And Jesus would be walking along, taking big strides, and this tiny little short guy with short legs would be running, trying to keep up with him. And he would be talking a mile a minute. He would say, Jesus, I can't wait till you get to my house. I want you to see it. I have the biggest house in Jericho. And you're going to be my guest, and tonight you're going to have a meal fit for a king. You chose right to come and eat at my place. And when they walked in and the servants came and took off Jesus' sandals to wash his feet, he said, you like these boys? You know where I got them? They're slaves. They are trained well. And Jesus, I want you to look at these pictures. Do you see this portrait? You've probably seen sketches of it, but this is the original. <laughs> I bought this from Athens. And, and, and it's very expensive. And you know, he looked back in the eyes of Jesus, and he noticed that those big brown eyes of Jesus were not looking at pictures, and they weren't looking at all the shekels of gold that had been put into the furnishings. But Jesus just kept looking at Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus could see his own face mirrored in the eyes of Jesus. It made him feel a little uneasy. He thought, well, maybe he's just from the country and he doesn't appreciate all these nice things. We'll have to talk about it a little more. But then he saw Jesus looking out on the lawn. And there were great crowds of people out there. And there was a mother with a little sick crippled child and her face was so worried and Jesus couldn't take his eyes off that mother And Zacchaeus said listen Jesus I didn't cheat any of these poor people I just cheated the rich ones I won't lie about that but the poor ones I let them off easy Jesus didn't make any reply we don't know what they said when we get to heaven I want to find out that conversation because that was really great But Zacchaeus not only was curious, he had a conscience and his conscience began to work on him. And he realized that there was something that Jesus had to offer him that was greater than his house. That was greater than his original paintings. Something that he needed called salvation. Something that his soul hungered and thirsted for. And so when Zacchaeus came out of the house, All of those people there could scarcely believe their ears because they heard him say it. Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I give it to him four times over. He must not have had much left if he did that. His conscience had worked on him and that had led him to make a commitment. And that commitment was costly. He was serious with Christ, and he wanted Christ to remake him, and he had changed his whole system of values, and Zacchaeus was happy. And Jesus pronounced upon Zacchaeus, today is salvation come to this house. Now then, if you're wondering about discipleship, remember that it is the Spirit of God who speaks to you, and called you to discipleship. That that means dying to self in order to live to him. It means that his word will begin to work in your mind and heart and life, changing your values and your direction and your goal in life. But in place of all of these things, he is going to put himself. Zacchaeus had a wonderful experience with his Lord. I expect that he was there at the cross and that cross meant everything to him and the other things paled into insignificance for he realized what it meant to follow Jesus. For some of you, it's fun to go to a big concert and to hear famous musicians sing but that's not the end to which we're seeking to bring people. Not simply to be entertained, but to bring them to an experience with Jesus Christ. That's what our young friends who provided this program told me. We want them to know the cost of discipleship. It's very simple. When he calls us to discipleship, he bids us to come and to die. Many of you have probably read this book. And if you have you enjoyed reading it. Dr. Jack Crawford knows about this book and it was on the bestseller list for just a long, long time. It's called Walk Across America by Peter Jenkins. He was one of those young people who went through the crazy days of the Vietnam thing here at home from the eastern establishment in Connecticut and upper New York State. His family backed him up in an adventure that he wanted to take adventure that would be a couple of years' walk. And he would take his beautiful uh, dog, Cooper, whom he called Coops, a dog that he had taken as a little puppy and raised, a dog that was his best friend, and he would condition himself and get in shape, and he would take a hike, a hike that would lead him all the way from New York State all the way to Mobile, Alabama, and all the way to the coast. He would walk a long, long ways, And in his walk across America, which would take him a couple of years, he was going to have an unusual experience. He said, I started to walk in Mobile, Alabama on March the 21st, 1975. He said, I'd been working for about a week and I'd gotten my first paycheck and it was in my pocket as I walked home. I stopped at a cafe for an early dinner. I ate the best catfish and hush puppies in town. Free and easy, I ate a big, relaxed meal. The young guy behind the counter rang up the cash register and dropped hush puppies into a hot frying grease. And then he came over to talk. His name was Hal, and after an hour of all the catfish I could eat and exchanging stories, he invited me to a party at his apartment. He said it'd start in a few hours, and he promised there would be foxy ladies and everything goes party and plenty of stuff to get high on. I was eager to get a chance to meet some ladies, and li- like myself, I accepted. And then he tells about what happened to him. He went home to the place where he was staying, looked through some his pack to try to find something clean to wear, and got a pair of blue jeans and a sweatshirt and his Nikon camera, and started across town to go to a wild party. And then he saw a huge billboard... And the billboard advertised something called a revival. And he'd heard about these things happening in the South. He thought it might be interesting, but he got it out of his mind. He was going to a party. Then he saw another big sign. And it was inviting him, people to come into the city auditorium to revival. He always thought revivals were intense, and he looked for a tent. And then when he had walked another, walk, uh, another block, he saw a big sign that said City Auditorium. And then he said he felt a call down inside him saying that he ought to go inside this building. And then he thought, I've been to enough wild parties in my life. Maybe I ought to go to a revival. Maybe I can get some good pictures. And he said he went in to this huge auditorium and he must have seen 10,000 people. There was no place for him to sit. It was like it was here, so he came all the way down to the front and sat down on the floor so that he could get good pictures. He had long hair like a hippie, and he was clicking away with his Nikon camera, taking pictures of the soloist, taking pictures of Robinson as he preached. And then he began to listen to what the man was saying, and what the man was saying was a good bit of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in a lot more learned language. What he was saying was that salvation was not something that just comes with being a a member of the church. In fact, he said that a poll was taken in the Huntsville Penitentiary in Texas and that 72% of the prisoners were Baptists. When the people all laughed, he He said that the preacher yelled out, I don't care if you're a Methodist, I don't care if you're a Catholic, I don't care if you're a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal, I don't care if you're a pastor or a seminary professor, I don't care what you are, friend. Salvation is not guaranteed because you joined a church. Most of what he said about knowing God and repenting and salvation, I didn't understand, but I knew I was at a place where something real and truthful was happening I had mixed up feelings. I felt self-conscious. I stayed on the floor, locked in between the 10,000 people and the preacher. My camera was now dangling. It was ignored. I was no longer taking pictures, but I was listening to him. Zacchaeus, you see, went to look at Jesus, and he wound up listening. I want you to know that most decisions, said the preacher, for church membership are no different than joining a civic club or a country club, and that that kind of membership is keeping people from knowing God. Just being a member of a church will not make you or change your life. You can quit drinking, you can quit drugs, you can quit running around on your wife, you can quit stealing, you can quit everything and join a church, but still not repent. You can become a good person and still not get to God. If you enjoy life without God, you have never repented and you have never been born of God. Jack Robinson paused, and then he walked from behind the white oak podium. He pointed toward the audience, but it seemed for all the world that he was pointing right at me. The sweat beaded on his reddened face and then seemed to evaporate before my eyes, and he bent down inches from the front row of the stage, and he said, when I ask you tonight if you're a Christian, many of you will answer and say that you joined the church. And he practically screamed, joining a church won't make you a Christian any more than joining the Lions Club will make you a lion. <laughs> His words began to penetrate. From the day you were born, you wanted to do your own thing and you were rebellious against God. If you want to really know God, you've got to repent of this rebellion which the Bible calls sin. Like a diamond-tipped drill, the message pierced, the hard, hidden layers of my personality. For no logical reason, I felt worse and more pulled apart than when Coops, that was his dog, his best friend, had died. I felt that I was dying right there on that floor. My life flashed before me as I felt a shining light expose my past 22 years. The preacher roared, religion is not the answer. Salvation is. And salvation is committing your life to Jesus Christ and believing on Him. But don't think you're going to use Jesus for a passport to heaven. If you confess Him, you must believe He is God's only Son who was sent to die for your sin. The preacher wiped his forehead and paced across the platform and cleared his voice. He preached on and didn't let me come to the line that gets it. He had gone forward And he prayed a prayer. Lord Jesus, I want the gift of eternal life. I am a sinner. I have been trusting myself and right now I renounce my confidence in self and I put my trust in thee. I accept you as my personal savior. I believe you died for my sins and I want you to come into my life. I want you to be my master and my Lord. Help me to turn from my way and to follow you. I'm not worthy, but I thank you, Lord. I thank you for saving me. We all finished our prayer and a vibration shot from my head. It seemed to me too simple, but somehow I felt clearer and cleaner and different than I'd ever felt in my life. Something had happened to me. It was dark in downtown Mobile as I walked home and I felt a smile on my face and the glow of heaven around me. My soul had been like a wavering compass needle. Remember, he had walked through the woods. But now it finally pointed to true north. I had found my lifetime direction. The breeze from the sea stroked my face, and I realized God was like the wind, and I could feel him everywhere. And now I knew what all those people meant when they were singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I've told you stories of conversion and what it costs to become a Christian. And now you have to respond. Now let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bless you for this one who has responded to your call and pray that for her, This will be a golden milestone in her life and it will be worth it all for one person making that sincere commitment to Jesus. And if there are others, perhaps some people who are older who know down in their soul that they've played along with God but have never really yielded their life to Him, maybe they ought to make a commitment. And you know how to work in their heart too. We seek nothing except Your will in each life We thank you for the costly grace you have given to us in Jesus. And we pray that you will help us to respond by giving as much of ourselves as we know how to give to as much of you as we now understand. And so, Father, work in every heart here. Work in the activities this afternoon and tonight and use all of this to bring honor and glory to your name. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.